This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. Your job is killing you. Those words from my guest doctor shook her to her core. And yet, she already knew it was true. She had successfully climbed the corporate ladder as the first Indian American woman and one of the youngest people to make partner in her firm's history, only to realize she needed to make a shift. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. My guest not only made the shift, she's now on a mission to help other women of color who may be questioning their own path, calling, and purpose. Deepa Parshathaman, welcome to my podcast. Hi, Liz. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. And Deepa has just written her first book. It is titled, The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America, and it is now available. I recently read it, Deepa, and it is filled with so much advice. Congratulations. How does it feel to have this book out into the world now? It's hard to put into words. You've written a book, Liz. It's a multi-year process. And so it's fascinating to go through the process of writing, then the process of trying to get it out into the world, and then for people to actually have it in their hand is a whole completely different emotion and experience. I am so excited because I feel like women of color need to see their stories on paper in words. And this feels like one of the only you know books or one of the first books where it's, it's doing that. There's a few that came before me, but obviously there's not a lot of business books written by women of color for women of color in our own voice. Right. What is the meaning behind the title of The First, The Few, The Only? So The First, The Few, The Only is a title that describes the experience of women of color in corporate America. So many of them are the first in their family to go to college or have a professional role. They're one of the only in the C-suite or at a senior level. And they're usually one of the few in a department or a company. And so it's really describing the experience of that trailblazing um, for women of color. You went through your own confusion about being a woman of color, and you share one example in the book when a male friend said to you, quote, you can ride the wave. What did he mean by that, and how did that comment make you feel? So this was a good friend of mine. We were celebrating that we had both made partners in our respective firm. You know, I was explaining how I was feeling already. I was a new partner, feeling the pressure that comes with being a new partner, putting numbers up and doing well. And he said to me, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. You know, you're a twofer. You don't have those things to worry about because you, you know, check two boxes. And I, as a white man who just made partner, but have very different expectations of me. And it was shocking. In the moment, I don't know that I had full words. I, I, it felt like it cut me at my knees. So it felt very emotional. I also didn't fully appreciate, I think, all of what that brought and how that felt like it was undermining my confidence and you know, pushed every button of imposter syndrome. Right. You write in the book that as a daughter of immigrants, you spent your entire life questioning where you fit in and where you belonged. And this quote from the book is so interesting to me. Worthiness came from doing and working hard. Sacrifices would be rewarded. Life wasn't about joy or fun. You were expected to perform, conform, and produce. And especially since you were not going to be married off, as many young girls in India are at that age of 13 or 14. How did that upbringing shape you? I think there's a lot of positive to it in that I grew up believing I could do anything and be anything, and that if you worked hard, you could accomplish anything. 
Um, but at the same time, I think there was a little bit of denial around the structural impediments that exist in America and that, you know, a denial of if you just work hard, you'll be rewarded. And my whole story in the book and from interviewing over 500 women of color is that's not always the case. Hard work alone isn't going to get you there. There, there are other things at play that we need to talk about. And you even believe that, that hard work, you call it your superpower, and that your superpower was outworking everyone around you. And yet, Deepa, that superpower was having a detrimental effect on your health. Your own scars were revealed when Dr. Heather, she's the 14th doctor that you finally see, and she's the one who said to you, your job is killing you. Take us back to that day. What was going on with your health? Yeah, I had been sick for probably a year and a half, maybe two years. I had been, as you mentioned, to 14 doctors. They had all described various positions or thoughts on what was wrong with me, most of them suggesting, you know, I, I was getting older and this is what happened as women got older. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. And you and I have talked about that. Like, that didn't sit well. But I knew something was wrong. Like, I just had no energy. I had all these growing symptoms. So, started as small things like skin rashes and hives and had progressed into, I literally had some sort of infection every two weeks for almost nine months. When I finally saw Dr. Heather, I, I think at that point I had had six or seven weeks of, of really intense symptoms, including the start of neuropathy where I had pins and needles constantly. And so she ran all these tests and she's looking at me. And, and by the way, she's a doctor I saw in San Diego when I traveled because I didn't have time to find a doctor in my, you know, I was, I was hardly ever home because of my job. I remember her looking at like my suitcase in the corner as we're doing this appointment. And she's thinking, you know, and saying to me, we can keep testing you, but I think you know that your lifestyle is really not conducive to you getting healthy. And that was her message to me. Mm. The next doctor after that, did I, I got a clear diagnosis and you know, the last few years have been about getting better, but it, it was a really complicated process. And I think it happens to a lot of women and especially women of color. We don't take their health concerns seriously, right? right? There was a lot of dismissal. You were eventually diagnosed with Lyme disease yes. and you've now managed that. How are you doing with your health? It's a process, right? Lyme disease never goes away. Um, and it's a complicated diagnosis because the symptoms tend to change over time and morph and, and evolve. For me, it's in remission. And so mm. it's, been, um, it's been a long path and a long process, a lot of different sorts of healers and alternative medicine to get there. And as I launch the book and as I focus on you know, what comes next with the book, I'm really being conscious of how much effort I can put forth. Like I, I can't do 20-hour days, three, three days in a row. I can't, I can't travel to a different city every day, even if that's what's demanded of me, uh, because I have to put my health first. And I've learned that the hard way. Yeah. You accomplished so much, Deepa, in your more than 20 years at Deloitte as a senior partner. And you had worked so hard to build your career, to get that seat at the table. And you write about the struggle and even the guilt that you felt at walking away from it all. How did you deal with that guilt? Yeah, and that guilt is such an interesting concept because so many of the women of color I spoke with share that. that and it, the guilt comes from responsibility, right? To be your first at the table, you not only feel like you're representing yourself, you feel like you're representing others and all the women and people <laughs> who come after you and around you. And so it was a really difficult decision because I felt like I was not only failing myself, but I was failing others by walking away. So it took a lot of conversation on, I, I couldn't serve others. You know, the, the analogy that we hear about airplanes, like put, put on your seatbelt first before you help your child or the person sitting next to you. It's that same sort of idea where I had to take care of my health and myself first if I was going to help others, but it was a really difficult decision. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because my guests have often stopped to question whether they're on the right path or not, which mm. is something you did, but many people don't. And whether it's fear or they simply don't ask themselves, 
It takes so much courage and giving ourselves permission to do so. You gave yourself permission. When did you know that it was time to leave? I had probably had a growing feeling for two or three years. And so it was during that entire getting ill process and that where the symptoms kept mounting. And, you know, I believe the universe and and (laughs) a higher power started to push the symptoms and make them even more difficult. So I couldn't stay like it wasn't a choice for me anymore. It was probably a two or three year process. And what really helped is meeting other women of color. And so in an attempt to figure out what I call stay or go, I started meeting with women of color one-on-one that eventually turned into you know, two, five person, and then eventually 20 person dinners. I did 10 across the country with my now business partner. And we were just looking for companies that are women of color friendly. Where does someone go at a senior level? And those conversations resulted in these rich dialogues where women of color were sharing their experiences in a way we had never shared before. Mm. And that became the fodder for the book and also the new company that I started. It wasn't a thoughtful process where I knew that was going to happen. I just I started meeting with women of color and heard so much commonality in our stories. And so it gave me freedom to know I wanted to leave. Although I'll be honest, it was a two or three year process because it's not easy to walk away from a job like that where you've sacrificed and you've climbed. And honestly, the rewards are are better the longer you stay once you make partner. It's (laughs) like the reverse of being a tenured professor. It doesn't make sense to leave at the at the level that I did at the time that I did. It's, it's the opposite of what most people do. But you did it. And I did it. since leaving, you are now a leader in practice at Harvard Kennedy School. You're redefining leadership in corporate structures. And you just mentioned the company that you co-founded, N-Formation. And it's specifically a company created for women of color by women of color. What is the goal of N-Formation? It's to really recreate the magic that we found in the dinner. So we hold mm. safe and brave space for women of color to come together. It's all over you know, Zoom and, and virtual formats right now because we still aren't meeting in person. We have women from all over the country and they come into these sessions and we have dialogues. So we had one yesterday where we talked about Biden and the Black Supreme Court nominees and what that means and you know, what does it mean to show up in spaces like that, to be called in spaces like that. And it was a really rich conversation about the opportunities around trailblazing, but also the shadow you know, responsibilities of trailblazing. I love it. Your book is about helping women, women of color in particular, not feel alone in the scars that many have from climbing that corporate ladder. So what needs to change, Deepa, in corporate America? And what advice do you have for women who are the first, the few, and the only? I mean, there's so much that needs to change, but my quick quick suggestion (laughs) is one, I think we have to figure out for ourselves what power looks like and what success looks like. So much of what we are taught is that success looks like the people that came before us and the models that came before us. And candidly, that doesn't work for a lot of us. Those models require us to give up parts of ourselves. And that is a really difficult, alienating process. So part of it is kind of the do, doing the work on yourself. And I call that the work of me. And then there's the work of we. And you have to do both parts. And the work of we is finding other women of color to have these conversations with. Because part of my own healing was realizing I wasn't alone. And I think that's the biggest thing that I have, I have learned from meeting with all these women of color. We all think it's us when the system acts a certain way or someone says something racist or is, you know, has microaggressive behavior. Sometimes we internalize that and think, should I have done something differently? Should I have reacted differently? Mm. Did I say something that drew that out? And no, like there, is, there are things that happen in the system when with people that are not our responsibility. And I think that's really what happens when you do your individual work and then find others and have those conversations. You just mentioned the word power. And I think that's such an important word in particular for women as well as men. But how do we 
come to that definition for ourselves and how do we reclaim that power if we feel we have lost it? What are some of those first steps? The biggest issue that I find with women is that we tend to look for outside validation. We Mm -hmm. haven't really defined for ourselves where our power comes from and what is powerful for us. So it is a lot of self-work of really writing, you know, thinking, deep thinking on what really matters to you and how you want to show up in the world and really being conscious of that and not letting other people's opinions or thoughts influence your locus of power. And I talk about that quite a bit in the book. I also think we're in this macro movement after the last few years of COVID where we're seeing the challenges that are happening all over the planet, where there's a bigger question of what power is and what it, business even is right now. What are we trying to accomplish and what are the impacts of what we're doing? And so for me, power is also a conversation around, are we valuing the right things as a society? And There is more power in thinking about collective power and how we use power for good and that power should make people feel like they belong and they're they're taken care of versus some of the other ways that we define have historically defined power in very, I think, assertive and aggressive and very competitive way. Hmm. While this book is about women of color in corporate America, you do believe white leaders should also read this book. What do you hope that they're going to learn from it? Yes, Liz, this has been the most amazing, surprising part of the book coming out is that I thought, well, I know I wrote it for women of color (laughs) and I thought, you know, that's who's going to read the book. And it's actually been more uh, male leaders who have reached out after reading the book because they are, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful, right? And unexpected. And so that is the conversation that I'm having more often than any. What I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from them is they had never seen the stories told in this volume. And the fact that I have so many stories makes it hard to deny that I think they always maybe appreciated that the experience was different, but they didn't understand how or why. And there wasn't really space, to be fair to them, to ask those questions. These are difficult discussions. And even for women of color, we've been taught to deny a lot of what is happening to us. I think the book provides really the map of what it feels like literally to be a woman of color in corporate America in excruciating detail with hundreds of stories. Mm -hmm. The white male leaders that are reaching out to me are humbled, are startled, and want to do better and are saying to me, like, how can I do better? My quick answer to them is understand the difference. So the biggest takeaway from the book is that corporate America is not a meritocracy. And we need to be okay with that. Because if we don't understand that, if we don't understand the differences, we can't effectively create cultures that work for us all. So that's the first step. And I think once there's that understanding, once there is the acceptance of the discomfort of the understanding and moving forward with it, that's when real change can happen. Exactly. One of my favorite lines in the book is that you said you felt like writing this book was a dance between serendipity and synchronicity. And I personally know what that feels like having written my first book. Yes. Share with us what that means to you. I just feel like there was bigger, and and this is really speaking, Liz, to how I got healthy. There was so much that happened in my process to health. And by the way, I think success for me now is very much tied to health. And so that's also part of my redefinition. (laughs) But there were a lot of alternative healers and a lot of spiritual people that I went and found. And I don't know that I had that in my life before, to be honest with you. And so when I put that line in the book and I was thanking people, I feel like when I needed somebody, when I needed an expert or when I needed a story or when I needed a celebrity's lend a voice, I would be thinking about it. And within 48 hours, those people would show up. I can't really describe the magical (laughs) process. And I think it's a little bit of of momentum. When you're doing things that you're aligned and you're supposed to be doing in the world, when you're living your purpose, the right people and the right things show up. And I think that's all it is. I think that's what happened for me, but it kept happening over and over and over again. 
I really wanted to put words to that because I do think it's special. And I think more of us need to do that. If we're living our true purpose, there's joy and ease in that in a very different way than we're taught in the beginning and very, very differently than how I, I was raised to go back to your initial question. I was taught to work hard, but part of what I've learned is if you're doing the right things, it's easy. And that's fascinating to me. I love serendipity and synchronicity and how all of that, when in alignment, is truly living your best life. That's a wonderful definition. Deepa's book is called The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. And it is now available. If you would like to learn more about Deepa, just go to deepapuru.com. That's D-E-E-P-A-P-U-R-U.com. And we will have a link to her website in our show notes as well. Deepa, such a pleasure to have you as my guest today. Thank you for sharing with us how we can all reclaim our power. Thank you, Liz. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you for all your help. You've been part of one of my gurus on my process. And so thank you for helping me find my power. It's been a delight and a pleasure and an honor to have that that opportunity with you. And thanks to all of you for listening. May Deepa's story offer you the opportunity to discover your own power within and live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space. 